Well, it was great to see all you men come down, and I'm thankful that you did come down. We wanted to pray for you, pray a blessing on you and your family. There are so many great things God, I believe, wants to do through all of you. And so just know this, we affirm you, we love the men of our church, and we, we pray for you every day. And ladies, we'll be praying for you in a couple of weeks as well. But today, uh, we just wanted men, to you to know, uh, all of you, that, that God can work powerfully through you, so let, let him yield to him. One thing about the elder nominations, that I, I've had several questions about this, so I just need to make this very clear. We gave you one nomination, but that doesn't mean you're limited to nominating one person. If there's more than one person you believe would make a great elder in our church, please nominate as many as you would like. And those are due next week. There is a class this afternoon at 2 o'clock. It's just an hour long. It's uh, discussion-based. If you would like to know more about what it means to be an elder because you're interested in being an elder or if you just want more guidance as you try to choose who it is you nominate, you can come to that class. There will be another one in October. It's October 17th. So if you miss this one, the other one's fine. I would ask this, that you come to me after service and let me know you're interested so so we can make sure that we've got enough materials for you. And so we will uh, be having that class. Well, let me ask you a question. What type of people come to your mind when you hear the word authority? What kind of roles spring to your mind when we talk about a person of authority? Here's what you do. Just take a few seconds, turn to someone sitting near you, tell the person sitting next to you, person of authority, two or three, and then let them tell you. Go. Person of authority. All right. Let me get some feedback here. How many of you, somebody said police officer? All right, yeah, that's probably the number one answer, authority, person. Uh, how about president, governor, mayor, um, teacher, what? Uh, wife? No, that's not even on my list. <laughs> wife. Any other positions that, you know, you probably came up with some that I didn't, didn't think of? Yeah, lots of authority figures out there to choose from, aren't there? And the Bible's really clear about our appropriate response to people who are in positions of authority. The Bible is very clear. If you come into contact with someone who has authority, your proper role is to submit to that authority. It's scriptural. You know, unless someone tells you to do something that is unbiblical, unethical, you submit to the authorities. Like, you know, if if your boss tells you, I want you to lie about this. No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to submit to that. It's wrong. If your parents raise you to be a Cubs fan, you don't have to submit to that. (laughs) That's wrong, and you just don't submit to that. Otherwise, it says in 1 Peter 2.17, that we are to, to show proper respect to everyone. We're to show re- proper respect to our fellow believers in the church. We are to honor God, and we are to honor the king. doesn't matter if the king is good or bad, you respect the authority that you find yourself under. The word submit, it's like a military term originally, and it meant to place yourself under the authority of another, to put yourself under. It's something you do willingly. You find out, if you, you can go read it, I'm not going to do it now, but you can go read in Romans 13 in the Bible where it talks about ultimately all authority comes from God, first of all. Anyone who's in charge here on earth is given that authority by God. And so when you respect their authority and you submit to them, you're ultimately respecting God and submitting to him. And so that's the appropriate response. Now, I've got to admit, though, and maybe you would agree with me, it's not always easy to submit. Am I right? I mean, sometimes, like, you, you get a ticket that you did not deserve. Not that that would happen to anybody in here. But, you know, it's hard. You know, you, you get a property tax assessment and you think, what were they smoking? Not that that would happen in St. Charles County, but you just look at it, what in the world? Maybe you got parents, you say, I don't know where my parents make these rules up from because they just intentionally do it to torture me. Not any parents at Connection Christian Church. But sometimes it's hard to submit, isn't it? You look at it and you think, I don't want to put myself under this authority. You know, sometimes the, the problem comes in when two people of some level of authority come into contact with each other. It's like, who's going to submit? Who's going to yield? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the boss? Like a story I heard, true story. 
uh, the former governor of Massachusetts was a man named Christian Herter. This was before my time. Uh, he was running hard for a second term in office, so he was out campaigning, doing the whole stumping for votes thing, blew right past lunchtime one day. He finally arrived at a church barbecue late in the afternoon. He's starving, so he gets in line. He's working his way down the line. People are putting food on his plate. He gets to the lady who's handing out the chicken. She puts one piece of chicken on his plate, and she starts to turn to the next person, and he's like, excuse me, ma'am, could I have a second piece of chicken? And she looked at him, and she said, no, one piece of chicken per customer. And he's like, ma'am, I'm sorry, I understand, but I'm really hungry. Could you give me another piece? She said, no, the rule is one person, one piece of chicken. Now, I don't know him, but I understand that Governor Herder was generally a mild-mannered man, but at this moment, I guess the hunger took over because <laughs> he said, I thought to himself, I'm going to throw my weight around here. He said, ma'am, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of the state of Massachusetts. She looked right back at him and said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Move along, mister. <laughs> That's some authority. And real authority, you know this. It's recognizable. You just know when someone has that position of power. They don't have to tell you. In fact, you know this. When someone demands that you respect them, you generally don't want to, and they really don't have the authority to begin with. But have you ever found yourself saying this I, to your kids, like you're demanding respect from them? You must respect me. I'm your parent. That works real well, doesn't it? Authority is not something that you demand. It's something that you're given. It's something you earn. So you may get a little fear response from your kids. You may get a little, hey, I'll go along to get along until I'm 18, then I'm out of here. But you don't get true authority and respect and submission that way. You know that. Here's something interesting about Jesus. You look through the Gospels, you will never find Jesus demanding respect from anyone. You will never say, see him saying, you know, I am, I'm wearing my Messiah t-shirt and here's my God in the flesh badge and you must respect my authority. You never find that. In fact, what you find is things like this. If you go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Brian preached the, that uh, the, a couple weeks ago. When Jesus finished teaching at the end of Matthew 7, everyone was like amazed. Like, this guy is an incredible teacher. He teaches with such authority. He's not like the other teachers of the law. I mean, they're like constantly quoting this guy and they're quoting that guy. And Jesus just teaches with such authority. They recognized authority when they saw it and they were willing to give it, give that respect and that submission to him. Well, on one occasion, we find Jesus ran uh, up in against this um, really crusty military guy. And, and this is a guy who understood authority and he recognized it when he saw in Jesus and we want to look at his story this morning. It's in Matthew 8. If you would take a Bible and open to there. We're going to look at his story. And what happened after that was truly a miracle, a genuine miracle. I'm going to start with his story in verse 5. It says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. And Jesus said to him, I'll go and heal him. We'll go ahead and stop there for a second. One of the things that you want to keep in mind as you read through the Bible is that the Bible is, among other things, an accurate historical accounting of real-life events, places, people. When you read the New Testament especially, you're seeing things as they happen with, filled with details that can be verified. People can go back and fact-check things. that were in, the Bible. in fact, as we've done archaeological digs on locations where the events of the New Testament took place, over and over we find pieces of evidence that affirm the things in the Bible. If it said there was a leader of this title in this town, well, they found inscriptions or coins of that, or they found uh, writings that affirm the things that we find in the New Testament. It's very, very much filled with details because it was an accurate accounting of things that happened. This stuff could stand up in court. If someone was so inclined, especially back then, 
they could actually go the, to check out the military records of the Roman Empire and determine who was the centurion who was stationed in Capernaum at this time. True story. And it's an amazing story. We've got a centurion who's got a problem. He's looking for a solution, and he comes to Jesus for help. His, his servant is paralyzed. He's suffering. He's got a terminal illness, and he goes to Jesus looking for help. Now, I don't know how much experience you've got with the Bible or church. This may be the first time you've heard the word centurion. You may have a kind of a fuzzy image in your mind of what that is. Well, what is a, a centurion exactly? Let's just dig into that. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army. Uh, today, if you were to kind of try to put his, his authority position within our military, it would be somewhere above a lieutenant, somewhere below a colonel. I don't know. The, the best I could figure out is probably the equivalent of a captain. A centurion was in charge of 100 men, a century of men. So he was a centurion. He had other officers below him that helped him administrate those 100 men. So he was the guy who was in charge of that. Men who rose to the rank of centurion were selected for qualities like fortitude, integrity, intelligence. Um, they were reliable. They were a peacekeeper. They certainly knew how to fight, but they also were wise enough to know how to avoid a fight. I look at this, and I think if you were to try to, again, look for the equivalent in our military, these guys would be the Navy SEALs. They'd be the special forces. Intelligent. They know how to fight. They know how to avoid a fight. They were just really well-trained and uh, intelligent people, these centurions. There are at least eight different centurions mentioned in the New Testament of our Bible. You go looking for them. You can find them. Two of them are even named. Again, given factual details. Here's something that's very interesting. Every centurion that's mentioned in the New Testament is portrayed in a positive light. All eight of these soldiers are portrayed in a positive light. I'll give you one example. The centurion who oversaw the execution of Jesus Christ. He stood at the foot of the cross, and when Jesus died, that centurion said, surely that's the Son of God. Remember that? Two other centurions in the book of Acts, the historical account of the early church, are actually named. One guy's a centurion named Cornelius. He was the first Gentile to become a Christian. Outside the Jewish people, outside the people who knew God, Cornelius. There's a centurion in heaven right now, now named Cornelius, first Christian outside the Jewish people. There's another centurion mentioned in the book of Acts. His name's Julius. He helped the Apostle Paul on several occasions, even saved his life. And then we've got the centurion that we're looking at this morning, another man who's portrayed in a very positive light. What was this centurion like? I mean, we know historically speaking he had to be well-trained and intelligent, but what else do we know about him from the Bible? Well, for one thing, we know that he was admired by the Jewish people for his generosity. And we're looking in the account that Matthew gives us, but the, uh, the gospel writer Luke also tells us about this story and what happened. Luke gives us a detail that Matthew doesn't. Some of the Jewish leaders from the city of Capernaum came to Jesus on the centurion's behalf and said, Jesus, this guy deserves to have you do what he's asking. He deserves to have his servant healed. This guy is generous. He loves us. I know he's not Jewish, but he loves us. He even like financed and built our synagogue for us, our place of worship. He's a generous man. He uh, deserves for you to do this. When your own enemies are willing to say good things about you, doesn't that say something about your character? The occupying force in my country, and yet I'm going to go to bat for him. Beyond that, what we find from this account is that the centurion was a compassionate man. Now you look at the job description of a, a Roman soldier, a centurion, compassion is not going to be anywhere near the top of the, the job description list. It's not really called for when you're a soldier. And so it's remarkable that he's compassionate for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, they, just, they weren't really called on to do that. In fact, the other qualities they were called upon to, uh, to show were things like killing people, breaking things. One Roman historian said this, a centurion must be able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their posts. 
part of your job description. Stand to the last man. Semper Fi. It's the original Semper Fidelis right here. And so how many of you, is that written into your job description at where you work? Where your job description says, Abel went overwhelmed to stand fast and die on the job. Anybody? Some of you feel like it, right? Another thing about centurions, they had to be ruthless about maintaining discipline among the hundred men that they oversaw. Part of their job description was to oversee and even sometimes administer beatings to their own soldiers if they were out of line. It was even their job to execute their own soldiers if called upon. Again, let me ask you, is that in your job description? Administer beatings on subordinates as needed. How many of you wish that was in your job description? Oh, man, I wish I could. Yeah, don't go there. Don't do that. So this guy's compassionate, though, and what makes his compassion even more remarkable is not just that centurions aren't really known for their kind and gentle side. It's also who his compassion was directed toward. It's a servant. You go, well, yeah, servants deserve compassion. You need to understand, don't evaluate this in the 21st century mindset. This happened... 2,100 or 2,000 years ago. In the Roman world, slaves were considered living tools, nothing more. In the Roman world, you got rid of tools when they wore out and you got rid of your slaves when they were no longer able to do anything for you. You could do anything to a slave, including killing them, without any repercussions. So it's amazing that this man who lives in that time and that, that mindset is so enlightened that he has compassion for his servant. Somebody once said, compassion is your pain in my heart. This centurion embodies that perfectly. His, his servant is hurting, and the centurion feels it, and he wants to find help. So you just look at this guy. Right now, I already like him, don't you? He's, he's a leader. He's a, a man's man. He's compassionate. He's generous. But more than that, I see that he's humble. Look what happens. I didn't read this yet, but you see here in verse 8, uh, the centurion uh, Jesus says, I'll go heal your servant. The centurion's like, no, 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 no. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Don't do it. I'm a, I'm a humble man. Don't come to my house. You don't have to do that. Here's something else that makes me think he's a very humble guy. He didn't demand that Jesus heal his servant. He asked. Isn't that kind of humbling to ask somebody for something? Because they could say yes, but they could also say no, and you face the, the possibility of rejection. So this centurion didn't order Jesus to do anything. He didn't boss him around. He just asked very simply and very humbly for healing. But there's something else that I really like about this guy, and it's how insightful he was. The centurion saw something in Jesus that a lot of other people missed. What did the centurion recognize in Jesus? I I go back to verse 8 and verse 9. Jesus said, I'll go heal him. The centurion said, no, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But listen, Jesus, I say the word, just say the word, my servant will be healed. I understand this whole authority thing. I'm a man who has bosses, and I have soldiers who are under my authority. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell this one, come here, and he comes. That's that's how authority works. I recognize authority when I see it. It's my world every day. It's in my job description. And Jesus, when I look at you, I see a guy who has authority. When I look at you, Jesus, I see a guy who has power. So he's very insightful when he sees something about Jesus like this, he sees something that nobody else saw. He says, you don't even need to come to my house. You just say the word and my servant will be healed because I believe you got that kind of authority. Heard about some guys who were kind of standing around talking, bragging. They're kind of going on and on, probably because their wives weren't around. They were going on and on about how they're the king of their house, king of the mansion. I'm the leader of my house and all that. Well, one guy, he wanted to fit in, so he like started bragging. He said, yeah, the other day, man, my wife and I, we had this argument. 
And she came to me on her hands and knees. Yeah. One of the guys said, oh, yeah, what'd she say? And all of a sudden, he got real embarrassed. He said, she said, um, come out from under that bed and fight like a man. <laughs> That's some authority there. The centurion looked at Jesus, and there's no pretending. Of all the people, places, and things the centurion could have gone to for help, why did he go to Jesus? My servant's sick. Centurion could have gone to any number of places for healing for his servant. Why did he go to Jesus? I don't know. Maybe he heard Jesus teach, and he just recognized something in Jesus that he'd never seen before. Maybe he heard a rumor about a man who had gone around with leprosy who now was running around with clean skin and that Jesus was the one who healed him. All kinds of rumors floating around Capernaum about this man, Jesus, and his power to heal people. This centurion was so insightful because of all the places he could have gone to for help, he went to Jesus for help. He said, I believe you are the guy who can heal my servant. In fact, I believe that you don't even have to come and touch my servant, that you can just say the word and you've got that power and authority and he'll just be well because you said so. And Jesus looked right back at him and said, you are correct, sir. That is true. Scripture tells us when God speaks, even the inanimate universe obeys him. Go back to the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. And what happened? It was light. I can say, let there be light. And unless somebody's standing right by the switch and feels really compassionate toward me, it's not happening. God takes a blank canvas, says, let there be light, and the entire universe is filled with light. That's the kind of authority God has. In Matthew 8, 26, if you just read ahead a little bit, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. There's this enormous storm that threatens to kill them all. Jesus stands up and simply says, peace, be still. He literally said, and if you look at it, he literally said, sit, like he would tell a dog to sit, or be quiet, shut up. And you know that the storm immediately stopped? A little further along in verse 32, he told a couple of thousand demons, get lost, and they did. In the book of Colossians, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's God in the flesh, that the entire universe is here because he said, be there, and it was. It says that the universe even now holds together because Jesus wants it to. That's the level of authority and power that Jesus has. And somehow the centurion looked at Jesus and he got it. He, he's, I look at you and I see a man who has incredible power and authority. You just say the word, my servant will be healed. What he saw in Jesus was great authority and power. I happen to believe that he saw absolute authority and power. And he was so insightful to recognize this about Jesus. However, as, as my admiration for this guy grows, it's not even his most impressive quality. I think what's most amazing about this guy is what Jesus saw in him, this Roman centurion, this outsider to the faith. Look at verse 10. He saw, he's just said to Jesus, just say the word, my servant will be healed. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those who were following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Israel, the place where everyone grows up knowing about the one true God who created the heavens and the earth. He said, I, I haven't found anyone here who knows about this stuff, who has the level of faith as this Roman outsider soldier. This is amazing. I'll give you an example of that. Jesus' closest friends didn't even realize this about Jesus, that the centurion outsider realized. John 11, Jesus' good friends Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. Jesus, our brother Lazarus, your, your really good friend Lazarus is sick, and if you don't come and help him, he's going to die. Jesus didn't go. Lazarus died. Four days later, Jesus shows up. 
Lazarus has been dead and in the tomb four days. Martha comes out of the house because she hears Jesus is coming in town. She goes out and meets him outside in the town. And she says to him, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, if the Roman soldier had been standing there, what would he have said? Buzz, wrong answer. That is not true. Jesus didn't have to be there with your brother to heal your brother. If he wanted to, he could have said the word right where he was and could have healed him. Jesus' closest friends didn't even realize that Jesus had that level of power and authority. They thought, well, Jesus can fix my brother, but he needs to be here to do it. The centurion had this amazing insight. And so Jesus goes on and says this in verse 11. You know, I've not even seen such great faith in Israel. He says, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What's that talking about? You know who the people are from the east and the west? That's you and me. People from the east and the west are the Gentile outsiders. And they're going to be at the feast with the greats of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This Roman centurion is the first of a prophecy that's now been fulfilled that by and large the church would be filled with Gentile outsiders. And 2,000 years later, it's still the truth. That by and large, the people who came to faith in Christ Jesus are the Gentile outsiders. And then Jesus goes on and he says this in verse 12. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is another unfortunate prophecy that has come true. The uh, subject of the kingdom are the Jewish people. And Jesus is recognizing that the majority of the Jewish people would not come to faith in him, would not accept Christ as Lord. The ones who are closest to him, the one who were raised to be waiting for the Messiah, would not recognize him when he came. And so Jesus looks at this centurion and he recognizes something in him. He sees great faith. In fact, it says that Jesus was astonished at the level of faith that he saw in him. Do you know how rare that is to amaze and impress Jesus? It is so rare that it only happened two times that we know of in his entire life. Only two times that we know that Jesus was just jaw-dropping, oh, wow, did you see that? Amazed at something. It was here and then another time. In fact, astonished is the word that's usually reserved for other people when they saw Jesus. Kind of like when he had just got done teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody's like, man, this guy's amazing. Wow. Like when he told the storm to be calm, his disciples were like astonished. They're like, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey his authority. Who is he? When he cast out a demon out of a man in a synagogue church service, everyone was like, Wow, who is this guy? They were amazed. He even tells demons what to do, and they obey him. Other people were usually astonished at Jesus. It's not usually the other way around. I still think it's awesome, though, that the creator of the universe, you know, God, he's like the one who created DNA and photosynthesis and, and beaches and mangoes and eagles and, you know, put galaxies out there. That God who knows all that and knows how to do all that is still astonished by something. That he humbles himself enough to be amazed by anything is just amazing to me. And this, this, this is a true account. Jesus was honestly impressed with this centurion. He really was astonished by him. You ever wonder what it takes to amaze God? We know right here what it is. God has always been impressed by the same thing. He's always been impressed by people who are humble enough to trust him, to surrender to his authority, you know, to follow his leadership. You want to know what impresses God? It's right here. And this centurion just said, you know what? Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I trust you. You can speak and it will be done. Which is pretty impressive because this guy probably didn't grow up learning about the one true God. 
this Roman centurion probably grew up in Rome learning about the Roman gods. So he learned about Juno and Jupiter and Mars and Vulcan and Apollo and all the other Roman gods. Or, or maybe he learned about the Greek gods. He certainly probably didn't learn about the one true God who created the heavens and the earth. Where did he learn it? He probably learned it when he was stationed in Israel and he started hearing about the one true God from the people who were around him. Now, he didn't maybe grow up with it, but he's a fast learner. So he learns about the one true God. He builds a synagogue for the Jewish people. Then he hears about this Jesus guy who's teaching. And again, he's a fast learner. And he looks at Jesus and he sees something. And he says, there's a guy who leads well. There's a guy who has authority. There's a guy I can trust my life to. He knows what's going on and he has power. And this Roman is like, I can put my faith in this guy. I can trust this guy. I can ask this guy for help. It's absolutely amazing. What Jesus looked at the centurion saw is like great faith and trust and belief. And it really impressed Jesus how humble and surrendered he was. And you know what? It still impresses God today when people are like that. I love what the um, Bible teacher Beth Moore says. And I think we might have this quote up on the screen. She says, Christ's word is action. Whatever he commands, he accomplishes. And that's a fact. What impresses Christ, however, is when we believe that it's a fact. Not that he can do it, but that we actually believe it too. Another Bible scholar, Philip Yancey, wrote this in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He said, Jesus never met a disease he couldn't cure. He never met a birth defect he could not reverse, a demon he could not exorcise. But he did meet skeptics he could not convince and sinners he could not convert. Is honesty time here? Jesus has the power to heal. The question is, do you believe in him enough to ask him to do it? Do you believe that he can? Are you willing to trust him to ask him to fix the things that are wrong in your life? I mean, you can, you can say it, but do you act on that as if you really do believe it's true? See, there's one other time that Jesus was astonished by something. I told you, it's here with this Roman's faith, and ironically, the other time was the exact opposite. It was somebody's incredible lack of faith. There was an opportunity Jesus had to go teach in his hometown synagogue. He got to go to this mid little middle-of-the-nowhere town called Nazareth where he grew up. They invited him to come in and teach. The hometown boy made good. So he comes in, he starts teaching, and at first the people are like amazed at him. They're like, wow, this guy's a good teacher. Where did he get this stuff? This is good. Then they started talking. Wait a minute, we know this guy. Isn't this Joe's boy? You know, Joe the carpenter. Yeah, that's his son. Yeah, Jesus, he's the carpenter too, yeah. He, he carried a lunchbox to work every day. He swung a hammer for a living. We know this guy. He, he framed my house. We know his mom. We know his, son, his brothers. His sisters are right here with us. We know this guy. And then they start doing this thing. Who does this guy think he is? And then it says in the, the next verse, it says in Ma Mark 6, that Jesus couldn't do very many miracles there in his own hometown. He could only heal a few sick people. And he says he was amazed or astonished at their incredible lack of faith. His hometown, the people who knew him best, who should have recognized this is God in the flesh, they're the ones who refused to believe. So he couldn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And you say, well, what's wrong? Was there like kryptonite in the well water? Why, why can't Jesus do miracles in his hometown? Was it like um, no faith makes him weak? What would the point be of doing miracles if even after you do a miracle, no one's going to believe? If people have already made up their mind not to believe, why do the miracle? Now, please hear me on this. I am not saying that if God has not done a miracle in your life that you've prayed for, it's just because you lack faith, okay? 
If you've prayed for healing or if you've prayed for a relationship to be put back together, whatever, and it's not happening, I am not saying it's because you just don't have enough faith. That is a horrible teaching, and the people who are promulgating that view need to stop right now. It's not necessarily a lack of faith. There are times, though, where we can pray for things, and God says, look, we got some bigger things to deal with, and for my, I love you, and we're not going to answer this, and maybe it's a reason you wouldn't even understand, but here's the thing. Our biggest problem is not that we don't get healed by God. If you think about it this way, when Jesus was on the earth in his earthly ministry, he didn't heal every single sick person in the world, did he? He didn't even heal every sick person in his own home country. And every person that Jesus did heal, didn't they eventually die? In fact, the people that Jesus raised from the dead, they died again, which stinks if you think about it. Man, I was already dead. I was already in heaven, and now I come back, and I got to die again. Our biggest problem is not that we've got cancer. Our biggest problem is not that we've got some horrible infection. Our biggest problem is not that you got heart disease or that you were in a bad accident or that your marriage isn't working out right or that your finances stink. That's not your biggest problem. Those are, those are problems. Don't misunderstand me. But if your soul and your spirit is dead before God and you have absolutely no faith in him, that's a much bigger issue. Who cares if God extends your life for 50 years if you lose your soul for all of eternity? You see what I'm saying? If you don't have faith in God, there's not a miracle that's going to change that. Faith may produce a miracle in your life. You trust God, you ask, you believe he may do a miracle in your life, but miracles do not always produce faith. There were so many people who experienced the miracles of Jesus firsthand and walked away from him and never believed in him. A miracle does not guarantee that you or your loved one is going to trust Jesus anymore. The biggest issue is, will you trust Jesus and will you submit to his authority for not just this life, but for all of eternity? That's the big issue. And you say, well, why is it that a miracle won't convince me? Why is it that I need to submit? What's the problem that gets in the way of that? You want the simple answer? We're selfish. We have grown accustomed, and I mean every single person who lives long enough likes to be in charge of their life. I want to be the center of my universe, and I know that about every single person. We're selfish. I don't want somebody else telling me what to do with my life. I want to do things my way. I want to be the one with the hands at 10 and 2 on the steering wheel of my life, deciding where I go and what I do and how I live my life. And I'm going to hit the accelerator as hard as I can. I'm going to plow forward. And Man, it may be the wrong way, but at least it's my way. That is at the root what's wrong with all of us. We don't want to stop for help. We don't want to submit to the authority of someone else. We don't want Jesus telling us what to do with our life. I'll do it my way. I'll do it myself. The tragedy of that is every time you do it, you crash. How many of you, and don't raise your hand unless you want to, but how many of you, before you became a Christ follower, you lived that way? Hands at 10 and 2, I'm living my way. Maybe you have someone you care about deeply right now who's living that way. Maybe in your most honest moments, that's how you're living right now. It's all about me, and I do not want to submit to anyone else's leadership in my life. How does that turn out? How's that going for your neighbor or the person you work with or someone that you love very much who's living their way without God? Is that working out real well? I mean, it always ends in a crash eventually. God will never force someone to submit to his authority. He just won't. Free will and coercion do not go together, and God will never coerce anybody into doing something they don't want to do. In fact, hell is the ultimate tribute to our free will. God says, if you do not want me in your life, I will respect that. And so there's a place where I will not be. So God says, I'm going to give you the option. 
I'm going to offer my help, but it's up to you to believe and to, to trust me and to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. When uh, Kirsten and I lived in Tennessee, we lived next door to a little boy. At the time, his, Seth was two years old, sweet little kid. And Seth and his family got a little kitten named Rascal. Still remembers, I was watching Rascal one morning, otherwise known as the world's most patient cat. So this little two-year-old Seth grabs the cat, takes it, the little kitten, puts him down, and he's going to give him a drink of water. So he's got this big bowl of water. And so he says, Dwink, Rascal, dwink. I guess Rascal wasn't thirsty because he just sat there and looked at the bowl. So Seth, in his two-year-old mind, reasoned, well, maybe it's because the kitten doesn't know how to drink yet. So Seth took his head and pushed it under the water. At this point, I'm thinking, do I need to do a cat intervention? What do I do? But he let the cat up. And again, I say world's most patient cat because the cat just went <laughs> and sat there. Seth, at this point, says, Dwink, Rascal. And Rascal's still not drinking. So Seth, now he's a two-year-old with a little bit of uh, temper. So he takes the bowl and he pours it over the cat. It was finally at this point that the cat realized, oh, man, i got to be somewhere. And he's gone. God will never, ever treat you like that. God will never, ever force you to make a decision with your heart that you do not want to make. He'll hold his hand out very humbly to you and ask you. But he will never force you to make him Lord of your life. He wants you to choose it yourself. I'm telling you. You just look through this, and as we go through this healed series, you will see Jesus can fix every single problem you have ever had and every problem you can ever imagine or worry that you will ever have. He can fix it all. That's not the problem. He's got the power. The question is, will we submit to his authority and ask for his help? That's really the hang-up right there. He can heal you, but we have to say, I'm willing to end my rebellion against the creator of the universe, against my creator, take my hands off the wheel, and ask him to make my life go the way it should go, to, to follow him, maybe for the first time. Maybe you're a Christian who kind of walked away from it. You know you're in a place of rebellion. You know that you're in his family, but you're not living like it. And you, It's time to come back and repent and say, I need to get right again. The key, I'm telling you, the key to eternal life, the key to having the best life, the kind of life God has for us, is to submit and follow Jesus. Like Brian said, if he goes to the left, we go. If he goes to the right, we go that way. Whatever he says, we do because he's Lord and he's leader. And a lot of people think, no, no, I, I'll do it my way. I can help myself. That's why they've got a self-help section in the bookstore. I can do it. Self-help is an oxymoron. It's like trying to plan your own surprise birthday party. It doesn't work. Self cannot help self. Self can only dig you into a deeper hole. I love what Mike Bro says. He says, if, if self-help worked, Jesus would have just come to the earth handing out Barnes & Noble gift cards saying, hey, go to the self-help section, get a pumpkin spice latte, have a nice life. Self cannot help. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross to save us from our sins. Here's why Jesus came to save us. So that he could fix what's wrong with us. He didn't come here and say, you know, I'm going to point my finger in your face, tell you what's wrong, and then leave. He came to rescue us. But it's up to us to respond to that. You know, every day I think we ought to just roll out of bed and say, hey, God, I'm starting a new day and I'm going to need your help. I probably reached the end of my rope a long time ago and I need you to help me. I need your grace. I can't do this on my own. I will just, I will try to stay obedient. I will try to follow you, but I need you to help me. And I submit to your leadership. I need your strength. You know, when Jesus approached all the broken people in the world that he came to, he never once got in their face and said, I demand a full accounting. We're going to have a little come to Jesus meeting right now, and I want you to tell me everything you've done wrong, and then I'll decide if I accept you or not. Never. You know what Jesus wanted to know when he came in face to face with people who were broken? Do you trust me? Do you? Are you simply willing to, to follow me? Are you willing to humble yourself enough just to ask for my help? 
That's all he wants. If you think that he's come to, to condemn you or judge you, you've misread Jesus entirely. That's not what the Bible said he came to do. He came to save us. And it's simple as saying, I can't do this, but I think you can, Jesus. That's what the centurion did. I can't fix my servant. I got a lot of authority. I can tell 100 men to go, and they go, but I cannot fix my servant. But Jesus, you can. I can't save myself from my sins, and you can't either, but Jesus can. I can't fix what's wrong with my life. I can't fix what's wrong with your I love you, and as your pastor, I'll do whatever I can, but I can't fix your life either. Only Jesus can. So that's where life starts. You accept Jesus and you trust him. Some of you have done that. You know what I'm talking about. There was a moment in your life where there was a line of faith and you stepped across it and you said, yes, I confess that Jesus is Lord. Like it says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, we'll be saved. Because we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And so I say, I confess Christ. I repent of my sins. I turn toward him. You've done what the Bible talked about. You were baptized by immersion, baptized into his death, rose in a new life. Some of you have not done that. Why not today just say, okay, I'll step across the line of faith. I will ask God for his help. We're going to have the band come down right now. And uh, we have one last song as we close out this service. I would invite you very simply to pray about where you're at with Christ. Do you need to ask for his help this morning? After service, just like we did last week, there will be people who will line the, the row here, the middle section. If you just want to stop and pray with someone, that's what they're there for. If you want to pray for someone you care about deeply who's got their hands at 10 and 2 and won't let go, stop with one of those people and pray for that loved one. Pray for yourself. But don't get out of here if something's on your heart and you need to act on without stopping and doing something about it now. You think I'll do it later? You maybe won't. Do it now. And Would you stand with me and then let's pray and then we'll sing this last song. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who shows us the way to live. He's came to give us life and life to the fullest. And I understand that there's something we've got to do. It's not hard, though. we just got to let go and trust you and ask for your help. Father, I believe there's people here this morning who need desperately to do that, and it's just hard. And I get that. I've been there, and I've lived it. But I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would just speak to all our hearts to encourage us to know that, that we can trust you that you're absolutely good and that you're loving and that you're not going to condemn us and you're not going to talk about all the things we should have, would have, could have done, but that you're just going to show us a better future. And I pray this morning for all of us to, to submit to Jesus as Lord. I pray that in every way this would be a church where we help each other do that. We don't pretend like we got it all together and judge other people, but that we just simply walk together towards you in, in humble obedience. Thank you for healing our lives. Thank you for the physical healings that you give us. Thank you for the relationships that you fix and all the other things that you fix. We trust you to do that, and we give you glory when you do, and we trust you when you decide not to. Thank you for being here with us this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.